For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. I've just been reading this story on the Fast Company website and it says that by 2030, if we keep going as we are, the fashion industry will manufacture 102 million tonnes of clothes and shoes. And they made the comparison that that is the weight equivalent of half a million blue whales. Oh my God. I mean, that is a lot of fashion. How does that make you feel? Because it made me feel really quite overwhelmed, I've got to say. Okay, so the team that puts on the Copenhagen Fashion Summit publishes an annual report that scores the industry's progress on sustainability. It's got the catchy title of The Pulse of the Fashion Industry Report, but the 2019 one basically says, we're making nowhere near enough effort to stem unsustainable fashion, and that the pace of progress has actually slowed since last year. Meanwhile, the industry keeps on growing. Half a million blue whales! (laughs) God! In a nutshell... Not enough sustainability and way too much fashion. Growth is not something, however, that we like to question in the fashion industry. And I mean, I don't think any industry likes to question it. We live in a capitalist system where success is measured by growth. But just think about it. What does infinite growth on a finite planet even mean? How is that supposed to work? Our guest this week wants us to face up to that and she challenges fashion to rethink the growth model and its obsession with producing more and more and more and more. She also points out that having more now will damage the security of our lives tomorrow and she argues that industry is going to have to change because after all, this is horrible, there is no business to be done on a dead planet. She talks about post-growth fashion. So she means what might fashion look like in a world where shopping is no longer the main thing? where, dare I say it, consumerism is over, or at least no longer the main event. Kate Fletcher is a professor at the Centre for Sustainable Fashion in London. And just incidentally, if you haven't listened to our episode with its founder, Dillis Williams, from Series 2, we'll share a link, it's a corker. But Kate is also a founding member of something called the Union of Concerned Researchers in Fashion. And we're going to hear all about what that is. I've heard Kate's name over the years many, many times. She's a very well-respected writer and speaker and a purveyor of system-rocking ideas. She wrote this book called Craft of Use and I heard her talk about it and became quite obsessed. It's very interesting. She starts with this simple idea. What if we paid more attention to the tending and wearing of garments than to their acquisition? Think about it. What if we stopped going on about how fashion is made and created and sold and marketed and looked instead at what happens to clothes after we've got them? 
How do we use clothes? How do we live with them? Pass them on maybe or mend them or alter them? But how do we live with clothes and how do they live with us? Is that perhaps not more interesting than just the commerce angle? It's a very intriguing idea. This interview is a radical look at alternatives to the current fashion system. And there's a lot of stuff in here. You might want to take notes. Do you often take notes? I'd love to know. Are you enjoying the podcast? You can actually help me spread the word by recommending it to friends and maybe even leaving me a review. I get so happy when I see reviews, I thought I'd share a couple with you. One listener in Australia calling herself Cherry Cola wrote about the Arizona Muse episode a few weeks ago that she loved listening on her bushwalk. And she wrote, I felt moved when Arizona spoke of the lifetime of clothing. My father is a farmer and when she said it's the most noble profession, it really made me proud of him and what he's achieved. Oh, so nice. And another one from Katie in the US. She wrote, bold, insightful and engaging are just a few of the words I'd use to describe it. Thank you, Katie. Go on, leave me a review. I'd love you to do it. But now let's hear from Kate Fletcher. Kate, the first question has to be, what are you wearing and why? Well, in about three hours, I'm going to speak to the Science and Technology Committee in the House of Commons, the UK Parliament, and I'm going to talk to them about some ideas that I have around usership and uh, sustained, resourceful, satisfying use of garments. So I'm wearing a secondhand Marnie top that I found in a shop in the small town that I live in. And um, who finds Marnie in Macclesfield? Where are you? Macclesfield. Who finds Marnie there? I, honestly. Love it. So where I live is really close to where there are loads of footballers' wives. And I don't know whether anyone had actually even worn it before. And then I've also got a pair of Birkenstock on with funny studs and other things that I bought to wear when I got married. I got married in a, in a field. And yeah, the couple of days before, my husband-to-be, my husband and our kids, um, were trampolining. And he stood on my foot and broke my foot, so what? I couldn't even wear these. So ever since, I've been sort of wearing them with, um, with a <laughs> smile. All right, we've got the clothes out of the way, although we're coming back to them. But I want to begin by asking you about the Union of Concerned Researchers in Fashion, along with Tim O'Rissanen, who's a good friend of mine. He was on the second episode of this podcast in Series 1 and two other fashion academics. You've launched this association. What is it? So in the late 60s, a group of American scientists got together and formed what they called the Union of Concerned Scientists in order to begin to turn the political discourse towards environmental and social issues. We were inspired to do the same within the fashion space. And what we did, four of us got together after a provocation from Linda Gross, one of our friends and colleagues from the US, from California College of the Arts. She made a provocation about saying, well, maybe we need something similar to the Union of Concerned Scientists in our area. And we were like, absolutely. So we gathered together with an explicit mandate to try and turn the conversation about fashion research towards difficult questions around sustainability and really taking on very profoundly the growth logic which at the moment is impeding any systems change within the sector. So that was, that's what it is. When you say growth logic, basically the consumerist society and the fact that 
the fashion system as we currently know it is based on continually growing yes so the business models and the economic ideas that underpin the system that the fashion sector operates within is based on an, an expansionist approach to engaging with things where we extract continuously more resources and every business needs to grow in order to stay in, in the scene and this of course is inherently incompatible with a, a planetary system like earth which is finite so the infinite capacity within economic thinking for businesses to grow is completely at odds with the finite mm. limits of the resource base we're gonna get into that so when i first looked at the union there were four signatories who were the founders <laughs> sharing now there's more than 300 yeah 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 it's energized people maybe it's also uh captured people's imagination it's given them some language to say things that they didn't know how to articulate perhaps what it was that they felt uneasy about and it's brought a focus and a point through which that people feel now they can act in a targeted way what do you hope to achieve so we have currently about six or maybe seven different areas of work um they range massively so one of them is a project that's involving us editing the pages of Wikipedia to improve the referencing within there, to sharpen the logic and develop the history more of this space of fashion and sustainability. Anyone who does research will know that going to Wikipedia generally and using that as a reference not isn't yes. normal practice. However, many people just use Wikipedia as the beginning of a process of oh engaging God. with these things. But this is also journalism, so, and we were always told never use Wikipedia because it's not the oracle, it's peer-added, isn't it? I mean, it is peer-added, but, like but isn't that in a way? I mean, absolutely, so there's an element of that always going to be concerned, but the fact that it is an open-source platform has mm. meant that we, from all around the world, members of the union have gathered together, inputted this information... And now we have a core of information that we now are getting translated by our members into different languages, and then they will add their own local detail. Might you be able to debunk the myth that fashion is the second biggest polluter on the planet? I think I know where that statistic ha, We'll came share from. some links. We've talked about this before on this podcast. Alden Wicker did some great research into where that came from, but it's not true, or it depends how you want to measure it. There's a lot of misinformation around there. I think it begins to make everything seem a little dubious. You don't really know where you stand when there's lots of misinformation around. Mm. However, I think the origins of it were in a very particular context, and it's really, really shoddy research practices that don't maintain the integrity of the original citation. And I think that came from a, a document in 1992 that was written by Peter Cooper about specifically to do with uh, water pollution from textile dye mills. And I have got the paper, actually. Um, I like how you've got Total Recall on this stuff, Kate. <laughs> well, not on everything, believe me, but maybe on that I do. Let's look at a couple of the manifesto points. So okay. there's a manifesto. I was interested in point number two. I'm going to read it out. It was advocate for whole systems and paradigm change beyond current norms and business as usual. We started off talking about the kind of growth model Please explain. Talk us through that. There's a great quote which says, people find it easier to imagine the end of the world than an alternative to capitalism. And what we're trying to do is to show and grow and 
seed a, a multitude of different alternatives that can sit alongside capitalist practices, but will ultimately dislodge capitalist practices exclusively from the number one slot. We think that capitalism will still be present going forward within the fashion space, but it won't be the main focus. So one of our practices is to try to put forward a whole range of different alternatives. In the frequently asked questions on the website, one of the questions is, is this anti-capitalist? Is the union anti-capitalist? Yeah. And the answer was not per se. <laughs> no, darling, not per se. No, it's not. Absolutely, it's not. But we're against a certain sort of uncritical approach to all of this. A lot of people, for example, see current practices, current ways to go about engaging with fashion provision and expression, doing business in this area, or even engaging with sustainability ideas in this area, they sort of see it as neutral, values neutral, and none of it is because it's explicitly propping up the system that is at the heart of the status quo. So acknowledging that even the status quo is an ideological position, because it is, it's an ideological position based on capitalism, is important in order to begin to look at where we might operate in a different sort of position. I think a lot of people within the system as it exists at the moment spend time and effort trying to rubbish alternatives, partly in order to bolster no change and prop up the existing system. Give me an example of what an alternative might be. For me, the most convincing alternative is an alternative that's based in localism and here what we would have is a fashion system that or multiple fashion systems that were shaped by the particulars of place by the people who were impacted by those ideas and the the fact that that industry inverted commas would exist there these people have influence over the sorts of decisions that affect their lives localism is an extraordinarily powerful way to begin to bring the benefits of decision-making home to the people who make the decisions. When I think of the current fast fashion system, I think about globalism, about the fact that our clothes are made increasingly on the other side of the world, places we've never been, maybe never even seen. When you talk about localism, then what is that? What's your vision of localism? So you're right to counterpose the fast fashion business model with this alternative of localism because what fast fashion tends to do it's like a centripetal force it's uh, taking the benefits of the system away from communities to some sort of invisible global brand by contrast uh, localism is a centrifugal force where the benefits and the attention and uh, the environmental impact is all felt locally what it looks like I have spent three years painting pictures, uh, trying to understand what localism looks like in this place where I currently live. And it certainly doesn't look like an industry that's churning out pieces. It's not easy to see it as about materials, provenance, and regional manufacturing, even though that's the ready idea that people have. Yeah, because I wanted to say, does it mean that we onshore production, that we shorten supply chains but are you looking at it a completely different way like is it about people I can hear the theory which is academic behind what you're saying but I still can't see it what's it look like 
can't look like a centripetal force because don't even know what that is. <laughs> I suggest you look on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> but what's it look like? Is it people sewing in their living room so, with their grandma? So, is it... so there's certainly an element. The problem is, is that people very easily latch onto what they consider to be this immediate alternative, and it's not as easy as that. But there's going to be an element of regional manufacturing and certainly local materials production. In the UK, for example, the most obvious local fibre that we have that we can cultivate and process entirely within our shores is wool. I mean, absolutely. And wool will be part of the UK's local fibre story, as will other minority fibres, things like hemp and uh, linen. And certainly this push towards thinking about what localism will be will have a material element, as it will regional manufacturing, people doing good things with fibres on a smaller scale to the globalised system, totally. The reason why I resist is because everybody automatically tries to reduce fashion purely to oh, it as a thing that we can make and then basically everyone consumes. And I resist that so wholeheartedly. Mm. When I was doing this work in Macclesfield, I spent a huge amount of time loitering on the streets, talking to local people, trying to find out what it was, what local meant for people in the UK. A system which largely doesn't have any manufacturing anymore. I mean... Macclesfield used to be a massive textile town, silk town. It's in the middle of the area where all the old mills are. Was it a cotton were, town? It or was a, a wool silk town. A, a silk, silk town. town. Was it? Yeah. I didn't even know we had that. Surrounded room. by cotton. So where I live is there's two or three cotton mills visible from my house. They, of course, they're not functioning cotton mills anymore. Because they're now cafes. <laughs> because, they're, because they're now cafes. And so. There's everything about the Industrial Revolution that has marked the area where we live, including the ideas about what clothes and making is. So when you're talking to people in the streets... But when I'm talking to people in the streets, when I'm looking to see what they're wearing, what they're carrying, what how they're engaging with clothing, what you realise is that what is local fashion is only partly visible in a pure economic trading, making, buying sort of way. There's a hidden root system of activities, local things that happen in Lordrettes, people's homes, all this other stuff that actually makes what's happening above ground run and function and work. And for me, what is local is the stuff that goes on in people's skill base, in the relationships that ha- people have with small haberdasheries potentially around the corner. In Macclesfield, there's a remarkable sewing machine repair guy. And he's one of very few that have managed to survive. And he has people driving more than 300 miles to come and get their sewing machines repaired. So he becomes this incredible node which facilitates so much local action. So he also repairs the sewing machines of the numbers of companies that still do exist locally, including an Australian woman, I would say, who's, who prints um, high-end prints in Macclesfield, um, She's relocated to Macclesfield from Sydney. Get out. So what I'm trying to paint a picture of is that localism is so much more than actually this slice that we would normally quickly jump to in our thinking of it like that. So essentially localism is about a fashion culture that you can establish. Unfortunately, no one ever advocates for this unseen, hidden root system that supports the other thing, not industry it's not in their interest not government and yet actually if government were to begin to try to find a way to foster better knowledge better engagement with and perhaps better reuse networks and other things locally then that would completely transform what happens above ground and the formal fashion 
economy. I want to talk more about your concept of craft of use because it's so interesting. But just before we finish looking at the manifesto, there was another point that I wanted to raise. It was point number four, and it is express our determined opposition to ill-advised and destructive fashion projects. What do you mean by that? I really believe that the way forward through this mess, maybe you'd call it, or opportunity uh, of fashion and sustainability coming together is that we do two things. We approach it on one hand by really calling out the things that we don't want to see, by trying to dismantle the parts of the current system that are doing us harm. And then the second part of that... What would they be, like waste, not looking after garment workers? Absolutely. That's it. By uh, pursuing ideas that ultimately are not leading us towards the sorts of long-term change that we need to. There's um, a number of different projects that I could talk to you about in a minute, which would perhaps illuminate that point. So the first thing is that you try to call out and try to negate the negative effects of this. And then the second part is that you begin to affirm and encourage the sorts of things from the current system that you do want to continue going forward. There are things that are currently happening that are great and we need to try to build from them as well as adding new things to it so it's this two-pronged approach so point number four on the manifesto is part of that first approach calling those things out i have to confess we've not yet started doing that on this in a systematic way the work of the union is being led by a group of already extraordinarily busy people and so we well, it's quite um, new as well it's quite new as well, and the ambition is really high, not just of us, but of our signatories, and we're always getting pressed to do more, and it's testing the boundaries of all our ability to keep going. You have taken some steps to shift the conversation that I thought were quite bold. I've just been at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. There was an open letter from the union to the summit organisers suggesting they address three questions. Did they get back to you? No. Surprise. There was no space even to pose questions. So I suppose that in itself perhaps says something uh, Mm. about an attempt to maybe control the conversation. You did an interview with EcoAge. It was with Lucy Siegel, who is an incredible journalist and the author of To Die For, of course, which I'm sure everyone has read. She described the Copenhagen Fashion Summit as the industry's annual horse and pony show. (laughs) and wrote that ahead of it the union issued a damning statement unpicking the supercharged rhetoric of the event's press releases the gloves are off oh nice is it a battle of ideas oh gosh it isn't for me but i can see that some people probably feel that way well between corporate forces versus non-corporate forces between being polite versus telling the truth as it needs to be told all this stuff right Well, I mean, maybe some people view it that way, but that's not a way that I would choose to (laughs) explain the way that I view it. What motivates me is good work and change. And I don't know, I grew up in um, in inner city Liverpool when Margaret Thatcher was in power. And there was no hope where I lived. It was a really dismal time. Anybody that grew up in the north of England, in the various towns, cities that have been devastated by massive loss of jobs. I mean, Liverpool in that time was put into managed decline by the Thatcher government. There was no hope in the city. It was really a hard time to live. 
And I grew up then and I knew that things had to change. And perhaps that's what I still feel. Things have to change. And I feel in a way a bit like a farseer. I've got this sense of something else. And perhaps that's what I've been trying to mm. bring closer to the world. Well, I thought that we could address them in a brief here. So the first one is about circular systems. Now, I love circular fashion as a concept and an idea of how we might shift the way that we take, make and dispose, for example. But this question is around like the fact that it doesn't tackle consumption, which everyone knows is the elephant in the room. So it was suggested that circularity is a transition strategy. It's not going to solve the problem of the fact that we keep producing more and more stuff. What do you think then a better future would be? I would say a better future is for us to engage with local ideas. It may well be the case that a circular system would be appropriate on a local level. I think that there is no project I've ever seen that's circular that works at scale. And maybe that's just because I haven't seen it and it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I think there's something that certainly, if you think in terms of households, circular use, uh, reuse and use again totally works. Maybe in terms of small communities, but at scale, it completely ignores many, many aspects, including, of course, logistics, the transportation of getting the goods back into the factory. At the moment, we've not got any recycled materials that actually can, in perpetuity, be recycled lots of energy needed in the process. I mean, at the moment, we're seeing that it's not a system that works. But perhaps a better idea, a better goal would be to conceive of a system that maybe was local. And then within that, maybe look at a suite of alternatives. Okay, but currently we get all the stuff either out of the ground or from the farm or from wherever this particular material in question is derived then we make it into something we put all our energies into designing something and we send it halfway across the world and we sew it and cut it and make it and then we sell it and then we chuck it away so the linear system is completely inefficient and mad to me the alternative of trying to create a circular system so you are feeding materials back into a loop if you like makes perfect sense i'm not saying we've done it yet but to me it seems like a pretty good idea of something to strive for i would say but the concern that I have is that people would do that and it is ultimately not dealing with the underlying problem. It is just, she says, just <laughs> a symptom lessening solution. It's a sticking plaster on a system that's out of control. So we're trying to make things greener. And I know you mentioned if, before, do less harm. If, if you've only got a certain amount of energy and you choose to put your efforts into a thing that's never going to take you to the final good place, why are you bothering? Why don't you just put your efforts into the place that actually is going to change things All right. properly? Question number two was about listening to diverse voices. Oh, it yeah. was within the discourse on sustainable fashion there's an explicit tendency of countries in the wealthy north preaching abstinence and austerity to the global south so depressing isn't it obviously yeah. it's a huge topic and we know this is a problem in the system but top line thoughts on how we might seek to redress that balance well i didn't attend the copenhagen fashion summit so i don't know whether they did invite workers on stage there was a panel on wages. There was Nazma Akhtar, who is a Bangladeshi garment worker okay. advocate on stage. And there was also a panel on modern slavery and hidden supply chains. So I think that they looked at that. But I guess 
a few panels isn't going to solve the disparity. I, yeah. what, what do you think? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think um, a lot of what we need to do is to recognise the the impact that maybe of colonial legacies and various choices that we make on the privilege of the North, on the responsibilities that we face to radically, mm. and this is radically a, a focus on our behaviour rather than attempting to restrict or reduce uh, the access of other people to resources that would improve the quality of their lives. Time and time again, we see analysis which shows that material consumption beyond a certain minimum level of standards being met doesn't do anything to contribute to human well-being and in fact actually it tends to undermine it yet we persist in our dogged attempt to buy and continuously engage with a consumption system model this mm. seems just to me to just be so wrong-headed but yes the union has uh this 300 signatories are from around the world and that's for me one of the most fantastic elements of it is putting it together is realizing that we have now signatories in Africa, through South America, through the Indian subcontinent. We have access to like-minded people, people who are pushing for change in their own contexts. This, mm. I think, is unprecedented. Mm, I would agree with you that that's so important. And that also that I personally, as a privileged white woman from the West, feel embarrassed quite often that the conversation is so markedly led by people who look like me. But there you go. Yeah, Work to do. Um, and just finally... Just another impossible question to answer. It's about sustainability. And I think this is going to lead us on to the amazing work that you do around looking at craft of use. But the question was, the fashion industry is very far away from true sustainability. And the measures of progress currently are based on reducing impacts to do less harm. I guess what the real question is, is sustainability an oxymoron? Are we striving towards the wrong thing? And I think about this all the time, Kate. Is there even such a thing as sustainable fashion? <laughs> well, I can see why people would find it paradoxical or oxymoronic within the current system as we experience it at the moment, the, the churn, the short-term mm. trends, notions of ecological integrity, social justice. They are, quite frankly, incompatible but what they're incompatible with is not clothing, it's not fashion as such, but it's just the business models that give expression to the clothing that we access. So it is oxymoronic when you're talking about the existing business models, but it doesn't have to be. There are ways to imagine fashion which really do act with compassion for, for others, for other humans and non-human species. And there really are other ways of doing it. And I know it's, um, it strikes me it's the case that fashion is no longer fashionable if it's like that. If it gets stuck on an idea of it, its incompatibility with sustainability, it's always going to sort of shudder and never manage to move mm. forward. But I think we have a, a poverty of imagination around other ways that this might be. And that's extraordinarily frustrating to me. You've got an idea, though. This is one of the phrases from your very inspiring work and we'll share some links. You can watch some talks and you can read the book. What if we prized usership over ownership? And Kate, you talk about this simple idea. Well, you say it's a simple idea. 
that we give attention to tending and wearing garments and favour their use as well as, or perhaps even as much as or as more as, their creation? Yeah, it's a, like a what-if question. That's at the beginning of it. What if we gave as much attention to using things as to making them in the first instance? At the moment, it's skewed so hopelessly towards making and buying and owning and grabbing and and nothing to do with this life world of garments. And what we know is that the environmental impact associated with things post-purchase is enormous. The sustainability effects uh, are legion that we could begin to leverage change on a massive scale if only we fully engaged with the life world of clothing beyond the point of purchase. Life world. I suppose what I mean is that there's a great phrase anyway, which says, you know, garments are sold to us as products. They're within the system like commodities. You know, it's absolutely an economic decision by businesses to go into business, push these products out there. Consumers rock up, try them on, buy them, take them home. They're products. They're sold to us as products. But when we get them home and into our lives, we live them as a process and this isn't a set of commercial decisions when we put them on our bodies or it, it's not got impacts for business, but it has massive implications for climate change, for rate of loss of biodiversity because of the knock-on effects of all what this might mean. I think that if we can begin to really try to think about what it means to use things, promote the language, the visual language also, the imagery around ongoing life in existing wardrobes, clothes, wardrobes, not just living in a wardrobe, but, you know, the, the clothes. If we could live within the limits of the things that we've already got, we would get a glimpse of what fashion might be like beyond consumerist obsessions. And this, even if it's just a glimpse, it gives us a pause, a moment to just think, oh, OK, perhaps it can be other. You spent five years or thereabouts collecting stories from people about how they used their clothes I did it was hilarious sometimes <laughs> extraordinarily eye-opening at other times and every time I did it sometimes it was a little scary I have to say and every time I did it I went away realizing how little I know because people are so extraordinarily varied in the way that they engage with the world the way they see the world how they choose to move through it that within that there are like gazillions of different practices we call them social practices and these just mean the things that we do behaviors that are a bit of a combination of ideas and materials so they've got garments in there and they've got materials and ideas and stories that people tell about things the the systems that they're engaging in how did you do it you're not just asking your friends uh, no, I didn't. Oh, my gosh. Not at all. So um, we uh, set up a what we describe as a community photo shoot set up with a photographer. And then I put ads in news agents' windows, uh, talked on local radio, posted them on social media. We put them on community notice boards and just said, come along. And we waited to see who turned up. So in the something like 17 different places that I did it, I think we had almost 500 members of the public come along and talk about how they use their clothes. And what might be two examples of those ways in which they use them? 
We had people who were doing very clever things with skillful fingers uh, to work and rework existing garments. The sorts of things that maybe everyone would imagine, combinations of mending or reworking items. And these things are fantastic and they are for a certain group of people. But we also had other things where there was no sewing basket involved whatsoever. And these were pieces where there was one instance that I'm thinking of in particular where a guy brought along a really old jumper that he had and he said you know when I bought it it wasn't like from an eco brand or anything it wasn't ethical it was J Crew because I know the picture it was J Crew it was and he said um, oh but I've kept it so long and I'm keeping wearing it that I've forced the brand Mm. into becoming ethical and I saw that as this sort of moment of realisation that actually that you can choose without any intervention in sort of skill-based way or with scissors or needle or thread, you can become an incredibly powerful actor in the fashion system. It's political. It's political. The last one, though, has to be the story of your old mate, Mr Edwards, who is from the Peak District and calls his jacket the three-stage jacket. It was a remarkable moment where he told me unfolded this story these layers of story which he started out with this very narrow fitting waistcoat and then put some weight on and couldn't fasten it up the front anymore so radically he took a pair of scissors and slit the waistcoat up the back vertically and then inserted a knitted panel into of course into a woven fabric at the back which I was just like okay great over a number of years later he thought he needed some sleeves so he knitted sleeves and he's kind of a regular bloke who wasn't a... He was a regular bloke. I asked him what it was. He was an engineer, he said. But he but wasn't a clothing professional no, or a tailor. No, he really wasn't. And he also had a hat on that he'd made. <laughs> um, anyway, so then he put some more weight on. So after he'd added the sleeves and the waistband and the collar, he couldn't fasten it up anymore when he'd had a few other huge numbers of dinners. And <laughs> then he then added these things across the front, which were sort of like straps, but he used a word that I'd never even heard of, which he'd called latchets. So I duly looked it up later. And he added these three leatherette latchets across the front and then finished each one with a sequin. With a sequin? I didn't know that. Come on. Really? Honestly. <laughs> and I, it was just like... These what a gift. The, I love these stories of how clothing can become its own character almost, and I think you cannot fail but to see that guy with his sequined, whatever they are, plugins. But what can we learn from these stories of use that we can perhaps take into our endeavours to make fashion completely different? I was going to say more sustainable, but completely different. Yeah, well, there's, there's so many things that I think we can take from them. So certainly... In Mr. Edwards' case, so the, the skills that he had and that many of us can have and can practice and certainly can develop. I mean, you know, look at a YouTube video very quickly and pick these skills up. What they have is they, they can enrich and embolden us within society. They can show us a glimpse of self-reliance, of something, of an ability to act in ways to create futures that we want to see. We don't have to purely and passively accept the system as it is. I really think that using things over and again is an affront to the consumer society. It's a slur on throwaway culture and it's not engaging in individual acts of consumption, which at the moment is almost the only way that people can think of dabbling in fashion. 
And until we can imagine fashion engaging in other ways, other than just by shopping for new clothes, we're never going to make any progress. So this is a beginning, a, a small look at some possible other ideas. You're a radical rat bag, Kate Fletcher. I'm a maverick. <laughs> maverick. <laughs> I've got a superhero costume underneath this. I want you to finish with one takeaway that people can actually take and practice right now in their own lives to try to join this future fashion movement i think what you need to do is to go out into the world and love it fiercely because i think seeing the world and engaging with it changes the way that we are and i think it will really catalyze action because you just know that we can't keep doing mm. what we've been doing mm. thank you very much kate Fletcher. you're welcome it's getting hard My parents feel that I'm defending you I tell them all that they are wrong Because I love you Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for wardrobe crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you we're okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you